How do economies become more innovative? And what lessons can the United States share with the rest of the hemisphere? My name is Richard Miles. My guest today is Jackson Streeter, who is CEO at the Florida Institute for the Commercialization of Public Research, a serial entrepreneur, a medical doctor, and a former fighter pilot. Welcome, Jackson. Thanks for having me. So uh, you have done quite a bit uh, in your life, Jackson. But uh, before we get to your, the illustrious part of your career, tell us where were you born? What were you like as a kid? Or how did you get into, obviously, first the military and then, then go on from there? Okay. Um, so I was born in Reno, Nevada. And um, when I was in my teenage years, I wanted to be a naval aviator was kind of the thing I wanted to do most. And uh, then I had um, some vision problems where I had to get glasses. And they told me, well, you can't become a Navy pilot. Um, and then a friend of mine who was his brother was an A6 aviator uh, came back at, at the holidays. I remember talking to him, and he said, "You know, when I was in flight school, there were these doctors, and they got to get a waiver for their vision, and they could go through flight training in the Navy." And I and I thought, "Wow, that's that's cool. I'm going to go to medical school now." And uh, so that's how I ended up uh, getting uh, into you know thinking I'd go to medical school is really so I could go to flight school in the Navy. But that's <laughs> It seems it like started. a kind of difficult way to make it into a, yeah, a cockpit. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of leads to a uh, sort of a mantra maybe, you know, for success in, in life and business, I think, is perseverance. If at first you see a, a barrier, sometimes you may not know it the day you see it, but often there's a way around it. So, Jackson, did either being in the military or being a doctor run in your family? Did your parents do any of these things? Uh, yeah, my dad was an infantry officer in the Army and uh, was the most decorated uh, veteran from World War II and landed actually in the 1st Infantry Division in Omaha Beach. And really? And went through, you know, and had uh, three Purple Hearts and four Silver Stars and was – and they named a – VA hospital after him in our hometown. But, uh, so Jackson, really, I've known you a while, and I didn't know this. Yeah, How is that possible? He really tried to convince me not to go into the military, actually. Really? And so maybe it was uh, maybe a bit of re- rebellion <laughs> or something that I, uh, that I wanted to do it. But uh, uh, I was really fascinated with aviation, and that was really what was driving me. So, uh, But my dad was uh, kind of had seen things that he probably didn't want me to experience uh, going into the military, so he tried to talk me out of it. So you got out of the military, and then did you go straight into the business world? Or you returned to the medical world, or yeah, no, I uh, so I it, it was a great career. I, I went through uh, med school on Navy scholarship, then uh, went to flight school in Pensacola after doing a year of general surgery at Portsmouth Naval Hospital, and uh, and kind of got the dream job. I, I was the first uh, uh, Navy flight surgeon to get picked up as a Top Gun instructor. So uh, I, I opened a new part of the course called Human Performance Enhancement and got that going, kind of almost my first startup, if you want to think of it that way. And at Top Gun, we evaluated uh, new technologies. And one of them I was evaluating, I thought, had a lot of commercial potential. And uh, um, one thing led to another. We're sort of in the mid-90s, and I thought, you know, maybe I could start a company around this. And uh, and so that's uh, what I did. Sort of had a career change. I sort of, you know, if I could have stayed at Top Gun forever, I probably would have. But you know, in the military, you're kind of even moving up and out at all times. So after I had done my tour there, I got out and started a company. I say, let me let me get this straight. You're Top Gun instructor, medical doctor. Uh, then you form your own country. You, you're sort of like one of those Tom Cruise composite characters, right? That uh, doesn't really exist, <laughs> right? Well, you know, I I I didn't know much about business when I started this 
this first company. And I thought, you know, for about $5 million, you know, we probably could get this clinical trial done. And, and it ended up costing about $140 million and a lot longer and more time. But I, I learned so much with that first startup. And what did the company do, Jackson? So it was a, it was a uh, use of infrared uh, laser therapy to uh, treat, isch- well, ischemic tissue, basically, is what it could be used for. But we were working on uh, stroke. And stroke's a very difficult area. Uh, still not a lot of really great treatments for it, but uh, that was uh, you know, sort of the, the area that we were focused on. So um, the last couple of years, you've had a gig as the uh, CEO of the Florida Institute for the Commercialization of Public Research, which we both know is way too long a title for institution. Right. It's a government now just name. calling the Florida Institute, right? <laughs> yeah. <you>. Right. <laughs> um, what is, what sort of, what's the reason behind that entity? What do they do? Yeah. So the Florida, we'll just call it the Florida Institute, is uh, a venture fund. Basically, we run what's called the Florida Technology Seed Capital Fund. And we invest in startup companies that come out of uh, any of the universities in Florida or any of the research institutions like the Scripps Research Institute, for instance, or the Sanford Burnham. Um, so any technologies that are developed within the state of Florida that are going to start a new company uh, are fair game for us to look at to invest in. So let's talk about, for, for our listeners who aren't really familiar with this world of technology transfer, if you could just sort of give the macro picture, what is what is technology transfer? Why does it matter? What what role does that play in sort of you know the startup innovation economy? Yeah. Well, so so important is this topic really? I mean, it's it's really what uh, makes the United States of America you know the leading country in the world, and it has for for a long time. Is that is that we have a culture and a mindset of innovation, and we have a legal framework that sort of backs that up and allows for intellectual property to be developed and patents to be protected. And if they're violated, there's recourse for, for entrepreneurs and companies to, to protect their interests. So that, that sort of environment has been really critical to allow for free markets and, and success of a country, really. So it's really fundamental. And the way that it works, um, you know, typically is that there'll be some uh, researchers, for instance, the company that I, the reason I came to Florida in 2010, there was a uh, technology developed at the McKnight Brain Institute at University of Florida. And the scientists there discovered some proteins that would uh, cross the blood-brain barrier after traumatic brain injury or concussion and be detectable in the blood. So those discoveries were patented um, by the University of Florida um, and then licensed to a startup company called Banyan Biomarkers that, that I took over and ran. And uh, we raised money uh, from private investors and a cooperation with the U.S. Army that was very interested in this research. And then over a course of about 10 years, uh, we just about six weeks ago got this technology approved by the FDA. So, so that's kind of a typical way that it, it happens. And then when this technology and this uh, will be a, a, a diagnostic test that will be done on patients that come in the emergency room with, with suspected head injury, um, the revenue will, uh, you know, come back to the company, and then the company will pay a royalty back to the University of Florida. And so the university will take some of that royalty money, and then they'll also pass some of it along to the inventors. So it's sort of a win-win across the spectrum from the investors in the company to the university that, you know, fostered the inventions and the inventors themselves. So if you don't have technology transfer, you know, sort of what happens, you've got a researcher at a university, say, 
they're, they're working along on their project and they come up with a discovery. What do they do with it? I mean, if technology transfer didn't exist, what would happen with that idea? Yeah, you know, I that's a if it doesn't happen right, and I remember being at Stanford University uh, maybe about 12 years ago, uh, talking with some venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road about a technology developed at Stanford where the scientists had uh, published around this technology and was a potential cancer therapeutic technology, and they didn't file any of the patents. And to bring a new drug to market is such an expensive and time-consuming and risky process. It, it costs you know up between you know 1.5 and 2 billion dollars to bring a new drug to market. So unless that's protected from patents, no one's going to put the capital at risk to bring those sort of technologies forward. So that technology did not go forward. And some of the people at Stanford said, you know, this is some of the best responses we've seen in cancer, but there's no IP. So you really want to make sure that the institutions educate the researchers on the process of, if you have exciting discoveries, how important it is to protect that and from an intellectual property point of view, particularly in life sciences. Right. So um, you talked about this sort of being an American phenomenon. I, I know Israel does this very, very well as well. Um, are there other countries that are, are doing similar things in terms of harnessing uh, the research that's taking place, particularly in publicly funded universities, and getting those ideas out of the laboratory in the marketplace? And if so, follow up to my own question, is you know what are the factors that you need? What are the sort of different ingredients in that sauce to make that whole cycle of idea from, you know, the professor's head to a product on the shelf, for instance. Well, you bring up Israel. That's a great example of a, of a country that does it, you know, the startup nation, uh, basically. And they have a lot of uh, technology developed uh, initially often for sort of defense purposes that have dual-use technologies. And they understand this process really well. They have, other than the U.S., they have the most NASDAQ-listed companies. So they do it great. Um, there are emerging countries that are trying to start doing it, uh, and they kind of look at what happens in the U.S. and other places, and they understand what where they'd like to get to, but they don't have the uh, what I think a really basic thing that really must happen is the legal infrastructure needs to be in place. So intellectual property enforcement, you know, really key, and and you know. A lot of the Latin countries that I think we're going to talk about later, you know, they're they're not that great often at protecting intellectual property. So uh, European countries, of course, that you have protection. The European Union is you know is very solid. Uh, Japan's very solid. Australia, you know, New Zealand. Those are those are essentially Western you know uh, democracies with very similar legal frameworks as we have. So um, yeah. So uh, talking about Latin America, I was doing a little bit of checking on on Mexico. And uh, looking at statistics on things like number of patents, amount of uh, research and development spending, both public and private, um, licensing, uh, even things like you know broadband use in, in universities, a whole bunch of different metrics um, that the OECD collects on countries. And um, I was shocked that Mexico not only was at the bottom, near the bottom, but was at the very bottom in a lot of those metrics. And then I did a little bit of more checking, and it's not that the government isn't doing anything, but it struck me that a lot of it was maybe at the at the tail end of the cycle. In other words, you know, hosting startup conferences and you know a lot of public support for these sort of young researchers and students. 
but that it hadn't really moved the needle all that much in the last few years. So if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what, what in addition to, to intellectual property protection, what are the other things that you need in a community and a system in order to really, you know, like money, for instance. I mean, right. none of this yeah. happens without money. <laughs> yeah, that's a real fundamental uh, pillar. So <laughs> if we were thinking of this as, as the pillars of how, how did, you know, what, how did Silicon Valley come about? You know, that's a, this, a, this is, we don't, have to look any further than there. I mean, you had Hewlett-Packard, so you had great industry. You had Stanford University. And then you had um, the venture capital community began there, basically. So it's the patent, the IP that we talked about. It's a great research university, you know, system that's there and capital. If you can put those sort of three things together, um, San Diego is another really interesting example. I mean, you know, 40 years ago, it was just a Navy town and a, maybe a place for tourists to visit. And now there's, you know, <clears throat> several hundred biotech and medical device and diagnostic companies in San Diego County. And a lot of that really traces back to uh, Ivor Royston, who was a, a researcher at the at, uh, University of California, San Diego, who discovered the PSA, you know, protein that is used for prostate cancer and still, you know, a very important test today. And he formed a company called Hybertech. And Hybertech was acquired by Eli Lilly for, you know, in, at that time, this was a big deal in the 80s for about $300 million. And that, that whole process of how that company formed and started there really led to an ecosystem of biotech being created in San Diego County. So they had the, the patents, they had the the researcher, and then they had the money, and now they've got an ecosystem. So that's sort of the right. formula. So, you know, one, one statistic that actually wasn't so bad in Mexico's case, I, I remember now, was that uh, there was one statistic number of, of co-patents, I think. So in other words, uh, presumably a Mexican researcher is on somebody else's patent, and they were slightly above the median there. So that indicated to me it's not necessarily that there is a lack of researchers or qualified researchers, but everything else in the system is missing. So that a, a Mexican researcher, uh, it's it, just looking at the data, I'd have to do more checking, has to basically find another researcher to partner with somewhere else, presumably, in order to file a patent uh, somewhere. Um, so let, uh, you've, been, you've been in Peru, spent some time in Peru. And you're thinking about maybe putting together some sort of deal well, or project. Tell, tell me right. a little bit about yeah. that and, and what so, you've uh, experienced so far and, and how much of that, uh, you know, what have you learned about Peru's innovation climate? Well, my wife is Peruvian. Okay. That's so. a good start. <laughs> so uh, we have, she has a very large family down there. We, we visit, you know, typically once or twice a year. Um, and one thing, you know, my father-in-law uh, last two years ago now um, – Got sick down there, and uh, so was spending some time in the hospitals down there, and, and really kind of looking around at the equipment and and the actual uh, nursing care and a lot of the ancillary services were really pretty good for him, but he did not have access to really modern cutting edge technologies, and um, so I kind of said, think about that, you know, you know, boy, you have a smaller market and you have some. Uh, a lot of public hospitals that are, you know, taking care of a lot of very poor people. But you also have some private hospitals that are taking care of the people that are not so poor that really would like to have, you know, uh, first world care. Um, so, but if you get real sick, you can't travel to Miami, which is where a lot of them uh, end up going. 
but a lot can't get there for whatever reason. So I think there is a some market opportunity there for advanced uh, you know products. Uh, it's a small market, so when uh, American company would write a business plan, you know they're going to write it about the U.S. market, you know Europe and Japan for sure, and maybe a bit of Asia, but uh, Latin America typically isn't even factored in. And uh, the way that these uh, medical products often take years to get down there because it's not until sort of, um, for instance, we have a, 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 a advanced diagnostic test for oral cancer that's been developed in our one of our portfolio companies. And they're going through the typical pattern of they've launched in Europe with a CE Mark product and they're starting to get revenue there. They're doing their US FDA trials and they're going to get approval here probably, you know, early next year. And then if everything works out for this is a small company, they'll get acquired by a larger company. And then that company will probably will have marketing and distribution in Latin America. I but see. that'll be, you know, four or five years later after that product was already on the market in Europe. And so there's a lot of technologies yeah. like that. And I see. So that's, so. A, that's an interesting point. So what you're saying, and it just sounds a little bit like, uh, you know, that the music market and that, you know, musicians a lot of times in, in countries like uh, – well, outside the United States, they spend most of their time focused on the United States market uh, rather than developing music in their own countries. It sounds like maybe in technology you've got something similar. And that why spend all the time going through the hurdles of a relatively small market if if you could potentially access the U.S. market? Right. And, and then for a small company to kind of figure out the regulatory environment there, the importing environment. It's it's And each country is a little bit different. You have to have local partners. And then for a, a market, and Peru is 30 million people approximately, you know, for a market that is, you know, really servicing maybe 3 million total, it, it it's just the numbers don't work out for the amount of effort that it takes to get in there. But there is opportunity in that. I think if, uh, you know, what we've been talking about, um, I've been thinking of, of, the, of a new venture to sort of figuring out how to potentially address that that market. Because it is there, there is a need there, but, you know, could you efficiently do it? And uh, so we're kind of looking at that. So, um, you know, we talk about a culture of innovation, and some of the things are easier to do than others, you know, like trying to make society less risk-averse, of course, takes years and a lot of sort of cultural, social things, that that's kind of hard. But let's say you were called up tomorrow by the government of Peru and they say, hey, Jackson, we want you to be our advisor, our innovation advisor, or, you know, a Latin American government. Are there policy or regulatory uh, fixes that you, you potentially could see progress in, you know, in a couple of years if you just had the right law or the right policies in place? And then hopefully that would spur, you know, a change in the in the wider culture, et cetera, et cetera. But are there is there low hanging fruit that that sure. some of these governments should start doing now? <clears throat> so I guess if I could wave the magic wand yeah. and write laws and uh, one of the really sort of difficult things in Peru and in, in particular is that you know they don't really have right to work, you know, laws in place. So if you are at a at a business and you've been there for more than six months, it it's it's very difficult to fire people. And, you know, this is this creates sort of a fundamental, you know, sort of from a startup business point of view, that, that's difficult. So uh, I would probably uh, want to, you know, address that. I think that's one thing. Uh, the other is that, again, you know, the IP um, bringing in the, the mindset that um, failure is okay. I mean, that, that's something that's uniquely 
not even all parts of the United States, I don't know, really are like that, but certainly in Silicon Valley and, you know, other places of, you know, Boston, um, you know, if you've had a failure, that just means your next success is that much closer and the experiences that you gain with, you know, failed enterprises is okay. And many cultures. That's don't. what I tell my boss here at CSS all the time. Don't worry about all these failures you're seeing. They're, you know, you're, you're learning so up. much, yeah. right? <laughs> but uh, the uh, the that cultural mindset is, um, you know, that that just does not exist in a lot of other places. And I don't know that you could legislate that away. That's almost a cultural thing. You'd have to you'd have to almost in a concerted sort of marketing effort. Um, show why that's okay. Because, you know, we have uh, startup companies, you know, in our portfolio and the, the sort of the the amount that are going to succeed across the country, these are sort of well-known numbers here, is that 70% are going to fail. Right. You know, 70, you, you expect that. When you deploy capital into seed capital, comp, you know, in, a, in that early stage, you know that you're going in, even after all the vetting, after you've looked at 100 companies to do maybe 10 deals at the most, you know, you know that of those 10 that you've already thought are going to be the great, the 90 you've already weeded out, that of those 10, seven of them are going to seven fail. Seven fail. Um, I was thinking of, uh, you know, something like the Bayh-Dole Act in the United States. And for, for listeners who aren't uh, total uh, innovation wonks uh, like we are, um, Bayh-Dole was, of course, this legislation that made it easier for universities to basically do something with the intellectual property they had specifically from publicly funded research. So prior to that, what the federal government kind of hung on to these patents, right? And a lot of times didn't do anything. It, do you think a something like that, let's say Mexico says, all right, we're going to make it way easier for, uh, for research that's been financed by the Mexican federal government, for universities to set up profit sharing plans, for them to market their own. How much of that would make a difference um, you I know, in the absence be, of these other things. Yeah, that would be very helpful. I mean, you know, if if I were, um, say, running this, like we said, uh, I would probably pick a couple very maybe uh, niches that fit the sort of, you know, the environment or whatever. And, you know, in uh, Peru, for instance, there's a lot of natural products. There's a lot of ecotourism. Those are kind of the sweet spots for, for that country, I think. And I would probably put some government funding behind uh, research and initiatives into those areas that could lead to some startups and have the, the legal framework in place like a Bayh-Dole to allow them to be commercialized and make sure that inventors are able to you know, reap the rewards of their, of their good ideas. That's critical. Well, Jackson, thank you very much. And I, I just want you to promise me when you were like Minister of Innovation in Peru, got that sweet gig, you remember, yeah. you know, you, we yeah. launched here on 35 West where there are millions <laughs> and millions of listeners. And, uh, you know, yeah. I, I get an invitation down there. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for joining me this morning. And uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Okay, another episode of Big Little News. And Sarah, you have for us today an article about appears to be marriage fraud in Costa Rica. Tell us what that's about. Absolutely. So it turns out that people in Costa Rica are starting to be paid to get married. A lot of Chinese specifically are trying to move into Costa Rica, probably because as we previously established, it's the happiest Latin American country. Right, we know that from a previous episode. But they're having trouble getting in. So what these um, lawyers have started doing in Costa Rica is going into these poor towns in Costa Rica and offering people $200 to marry people that they've never met. So they'll give them $200, have them sign a document, 
Um, and then once they sign, they'll hand him a photo saying, this is the person you just married. Um, and they claim they'll come back several months later to get divorced, to sign divorce papers. But often the lawyers will never come back. So people are stuck in these marriages with these people that they've never met. So I'm guessing this is probably actually illegal. Or or is it legal and the, and the Costa Ricans just haven't caught on yet? Well, I think for... I mean, it's certainly illegal, but I think for a while they didn't quite realize what an issue it was. But since, I believe, 2010, they started really cracking down on immigration, um, and they're really cracking down now. So they're putting in more processes to make people prove that they're actually in love. You have to mail in wedding photos and love notes, um, and you can stay there for three years. And then if you prove that you're truly in love, then you can stay. So do we have any sense of the magnitude of, of the sort of the migrations coming in? Or, or, you know, what kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of Chinese traveling to Costa Rica for the purposes of marriage fraud? Do we have any idea what that is? Well, um, so apparently Costa Rica is receiving um, a larger Chinese population than any other Latin American country, relatively. And they're the biggest country outside of the Latin American region for marriage fraud. But there are a couple other countries in Latin America that are higher than China. All right. Well, um, interesting, as always. Uh, something we will keep track of. And um, thanks very much, Sarah. Absolutely. 35 West is a production of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Special thanks to our editor, Ribka Gemelangsari, program manager, Linnea Sandin, and research assistant, Sarah Baumunk. If you like the show, please, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening today, and please join us again next week. <laughs>